Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how Liz Truss has risen to be the new UK prime minister and what that's going to mean politically there moving forward. Also going to be touching on the blowback that Europe is receiving because of its involvement with the war in Ukraine. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And it's always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today. We are very happy to be joined by Roger McKenzie, a reporter for The Morning Star, the world's only daily socialist newspaper in the English language, and the General Secretary of Liberation, one of the oldest human rights organizations in the United Kingdom. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Roger, Liz Truss, of course, has emerged victorious over Rishi Sunak to uh, replace former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and emerging as the leader of the Conservative Party. Now, of course, uh, the Boris Johnson administration won uh, a shot through with um, uh, different sorts of scandals and things like that that, you know, led to, I think, a shakeup in his government and ultimately his removal as you came prime minister. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what do you see as the significance of a uh, a Liz Truss uh, uh, administration as things move forward in the UK? And uh, what do you think led uh, to the situation? I think it's really, really important to remember that Liz Truss has been sitting in the cabinet for 10, 11 years or something. So it's not like she's new, it's a new brand brand new broom sweeping clean or anything. She's um, absolutely implicated in all of the authoritarian right wing um, policies that this Tory government has been putting in place for a decade now. So she's been right at the table when all these things are going on, take stripping away um, people's um, rights to protest, stripping away um, people's rights to um, benefits, removing, you know, introducing some of the, the most racist um, legislation um, that anybody in the UK can remember. She was around the table when um, Priti Patel, the outgoing Home Secretary, decided that um, she was going to um, have a deal where people who are claiming asylum to the UK um, were going to be um, shipped off to Rwanda. So, so this is um, more of the same, frankly. And anybody who thinks that it's going to be some kind of different approach um, by somebody who sat around the table for all of that time is really deluded. Um, she's a hard right-wing um, fanatic, um, and and we have to already people in this country, the activists in this country, the left in this country already know that we have to step up step up our organizing game to be able to to deal with her how did she get here she she was chosen by johnson as his successor basically johnson it must be remembered is still extremely popular amongst the rank and file of the tory party actually polls are telling us that he's far more popular within the um, tory party than 
either Truss or the person she beat in the leadership race, which she soon acts. So, um, so he's got a big following still, and all the word over the last few days is that he's plotting a comeback at some point as well. So he's not resigned from Parliament. He's still around. He is going to be plotting his comeback from the backbenches um, in the House of Commons. So um, this is a really serious moment for, for those of us on the left where we really have to understand that a change of face at number 10 is not a change of policy. It's um, merely just shifting the decks around. Yeah, and on that note, I'm wondering, and you sort of touched on this in your first response there, Roger, but I'm wondering what do you think a trust administration is going to mean on two levels? Number one, on the home front in terms of uh, the most pertinent domestic issues facing the U.K. right now, which I think uh, likely have implications for the rest of Europe as well, and in terms of uh, of foreign policy. So on those two fronts, I mean, what is Liz Truss's orientation and, and what do you think that's going to mean? Well, on, on the on the home front, Sean, um, one of one of the things that um, has happened over the last few days is that um, Priti Patel, who's been perhaps the most reactionary um, home secretary um, that anybody in this country who I've spoken to can remember, um, she stepped down yesterday. So before um, the announcement of the new um, Tory cabinet was made, she stepped down, and all the indications are it's because. Um, even she wasn't right-wing enough for, for what Trust wants to do because, um, I mean, announcements will be made later on today, but it looks as though um, the touted um, replacement for um, Priti Patel um, it, and Suella Braverman is um, even more to the right than, uh, than Patel. So, you know, um, I mean, this is a... Example actually, Sean, of where you see um, black people coming through uh, or people of colour coming through into senior positions, and people hail that as progress. Well, these are some of the most reactionary right wing people that we've ever had in leading positions um, within. Um, within any government um, within this country. Um, so on the home front, um, there's plenty to be worried about in terms of the a further shift to an even more authoritarian um, stance um, by the government. But in terms of the foreign policy, remember Truss was the, the foreign secretary and was at the heart of all of the um, shenanigans to do with um, supporting uh, supporting Ukraine. Um, and did a and and and, and frankly embarrassed the, the whole country with the way that she didn't even know when she was at some of these meetings what country she was in. Um, so so it's not so again as as we see with the um, as we see with the home agenda, we look at the foreign agenda, and again we have to say that it's going to be more of the same. The biggest worry of course, is that one of the things that Truss is very keen to do is to take advantage of any possible photo opportunity that, that she can, can make. So she's very keen to have a picture taken with, you know, sitting on a tank or with a bazooka or whatever they're called these days, but the latest weapon, um, or sitting next, you know, standing next to 
and the latest um, military hardware of some kind. So, so she loves all that. But the big worry is that she has also been making noises about um, China and about the role of China and a further expansion of um, NATO eastwards. Now, we saw what the expansion of uh, NATO eastwards did in terms of um, being one of the contributory factors towards um, the um, the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. And by, I'm saying this, I'm absolutely not um, excusing the gangster Putin and what he's done by, by sending troops in there. But but isn't that at all that the expansion of NATO eastwards was a big contributory factor in starting that? Now, if she thinks that um, trying to... <laughs> have a NATO presence or a de facto NATO presence um, in the um, further east um, out towards um, China and interfering in Taiwan and the rest of it, then these are really dangerous times, really dangerous times. So, um, you know, this is a time when we have to build um, the progressive movement um, at home. And it's also a time when we have to build the international progressive movement um, as well so that we can stand up to these moves, which um, Trust will do to, to bolster um, Biden's moves to um, vilify China um, and to um, you know, their agenda with Israel and so on. So, you know, and, you know we, we have to make sure that people understand our support for the Palestinians is unequivocal. Um, so that moves by any moves by trust to try and um, bolster Israel needs to be resisted, needs to be organised against, um, and her moves to try and um, further um, vilify uh, China also needs to be spoken out against as well. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned uh, uh, the Joe Biden administration here in the United States, Roger, and that was actually my next question about uh, what do you think Liz Truss becoming prime minister is going to mean uh, in terms of the UK's relationship towards Washington? I mean, as uh, you know, at least it's my impression that the U.S. government likes to keep the UK and really all of Europe in in a kind of, uh, you know, a junior partner sort of position as a kind of appendage to, you know, imperialism's uh, whim. Um, within the calculus of global politics. And so what do you see for that dynamic? Do you think it'll be more in the same? Do you think that there may be some shift or how do you see it? Uh, there'll be no shift. Um, I mean, there'll be, um, you know, there'll be lots of talk over the next few days about the special relationship that exists um, between the UK and the US. Um, and it's a special relationship of imperialism, frankly. Um, it's a special relationship of the UK supporting um, whatever military adventure the US wants to indulge in next um, without question. So those, those sort of things uh, simply will not change. And, and I have to say, frankly, it wouldn't matter which of the um, current um, main political parties in the UK um, was in power. That would mean so the Labour Party, favoring, um, they won an election. Um, and came to power, it would be much of the same. Um, they would be the kind of lapdog of um, the, the US. I think what we'll see in the next few weeks, um, I, would I would be very surprised if it wasn't her first international visit, um, would be to the US um, to get a nice photo opportunity taken um, 
in the White House um, chatting with, with Biden somewhere. Uh, so in terms of the relationship between the UK and US, no, no difference. And, you know, the size of the task that we have on in the UK is, is, the, is, the, is the fact that at the moment it wouldn't matter which of the main political parties were, um, were in um, government, it would still be the same kind of support for um, US military adventurism. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you mentioned a little earlier about how um, both the domestic uh, progressive uh, resistance against this uh, right-wing government within the UK and uh, uh, how important it also was to sort of have an international movement against this as well. I mean, it makes me wonder, Roger, about what uh, um, what the progressive elements within the UK, how they're perhaps organizing in this moment um, uh, against the, uh, I think, dangerous potentialities of a trust uh, a prime minister position. I mean, I was actually just looking on the Morning Star about how uh, different unions are saying that, you know, a trust will face, quote, fierce resistance if she goes after workers' rights, which seems to be uh, uh, likely given what we've heard from her up until this point. And so, uh, and this is a broad question, but I am just wondering how, you know, different elements within the progressive movements in the UK are sort of operating in this moment. I think this um, it's, it's quite easy at the moment to to feel quite um, down and to be um, you know, kind of pessimistic, I guess. But I, I don't see it that way. I think this is a, a time for a lot of optimism and hope because what I see is I see workers um, across the UK um, saying, um, and literally there's a campaign that's been started up to say this, enough is enough. Um, that's why you see workers across the UK striking for, um, you know, just just to just to get to um, a level where they can just pay their bills, um, you know, pay rises that meet um, the level of inflation that it is right now. We all, at the moment, on one measure of inflation, it's above 11 percent in the in the UK, and predictions from some economists are saying that. Um, by this sort of time next year, is likely to be around 18%. Now, people cannot afford to survive. One of the big debates at the moment, Sean, in the UK is about um, how we can, um, how people are going to meet their fuel bills this winter. Um, and um, you know, the, the debate is quite a crucial one because what we're hearing coming out of the, the when, you know, one of the first things that's coming out of the trust administration is that basically they're going to, um, it's, it's going to be households, it's going to be families that will pay for any support um, to um, hold down energy bills when actually what should be happening is the mega profits that are being made by the energy companies, they should be taxed. There should be a windfall tax um, against profits. But more than that, there should be a wealth tax in the UK. And all of those things are part of a massive campaign at the moment. So there's masses of industrial action taking place across the UK from um, rail workers to communication workers to postal workers, um, teachers are balanced. In fact, some teachers, um, some um, lecturers, university lecturers are on strike today and solidarity um, to them. Um, there are, um, there's a, I just had a, a notice that the fire brigade union um, are going to be balloting their members for industrial action. Um, nurses are balloting for industrial action. 
public service, local government workers, a balloting for industrial action. So, um, and you've got to look at this, Sean, against the, the fact that um, a few years ago, if we were having this conversation, I would have been very pessimistic that we would have seen, we would be in a position for national disputes anymore because um, the government had introduced a whole set of, whole raft of legislation, which basically said, um, to, which was all designed to make it impossible for um, people to reach a threshold of the numbers of people taking part in an industrial action ballot and the numbers that you still needed to get to to win an industrial action ballot. Um, and those those thresholds have been slaughtered every single time because people understand they cannot afford to live the way things are. So something must be done. And the the amount of public support that there is um, for these disputes is unprecedented. Um, so the government know that, um, and, but they will attack, they will still try and attack the trade unions because it is still one of the things that the Tories always try and do to, to bring their side together, to unite their party, is, is to attack trade unions. So um, I see people in this country rising up right now. Um, not rhetoric. This is what is happening. People are taking industrial action. People are organizing. People are saying enough is enough and they can't afford to live on the sort of money that they have. They can't heat their homes. They can't even pay for um, the amount of money that it would cost to to run a, sh a hot shower anymore. You know, people are having to go to food banks, um, but they can't afford to heat a potato that they might get at a food bank because um, they can't afford the energy that it would cost to do that. So, but pe so people see this for themselves and are rising up and are organizing. And, um, you know, the, the numbers of people coming to trade unions are growing, but also I see the numbers of people who are saying you know, just from their own experience is that enough is enough and they see their national health service being destroyed in front of their very eyes. You know, people having to wait 15 hours outside a hospital in an ambulance, in the cold, in an ambulance because um, there's no room um, in the hospital um, to, to take them and to, to treat them. And people see these things for themselves and, um, and they're not prepared to put up with it anymore. So I'm optimistic that we can build a movement over here that will make a radical difference um, to what people um, are having to, to deal with. And the danger is if we don't build a radical socialist progressive movement um, around these issues, the cost of living issue in particular, then we run the danger of allowing, as, as you guys saw and can tell us all about in the States, you see um, how the right wing step into that breach, how the right wing step into that void themselves and build their own movement. And we can't afford for that to happen. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Roger, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're talking about how the ongoing war in Ukraine is impacting Europe on different levels. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Professor Boaventura de Sousa Santos, Emeritus Professor of Sociology, University of Coimbra in Portugal. His most recent book is Decolonizing the University, The Challenge of Deep Cognitive Justice. And he is the recipient of the 2022 France Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award. Professor Santos. Thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure to be with you, Sean. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Professor. And, you know, uh, recently in Prague, an estimated 70,000 people were protesting uh, against the Czech government, uh, uh, both against uh, uh, the rising cost of energy and uh, also uh, voicing their opposition to NATO and the European Union. And this, to me, feels like uh, just one example of sort of rising uh, tensions and conflicts amongst the rank-and-file people across Europe as they really feel the economic squeeze from uh, the war in Ukraine in a number of ways as these rising energy prices uh, sort of set the stage for a very cold winter in Europe for sure. And you recently published a piece about this, uh, Professor, entitled Ukraine is a Wake-Up Call for Europe, where you sort of lay out uh, all the different ways that um, Europe's involvement in this war is sort of impacting the uh, 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 negatively. And I was hoping you could sort of break down some of the ways that Europe has uh, sort of seen these uh, consequences and, you know, what it means for uh, the person on the ground. Well, the consequences are, are very dear, as you can imagine, because uh, the uh, increase in the price of energy, gas and oil has been tremendous in some uh, states. It's been enormous, 60, 70 percent, the case of uh, the U.K., and here in Europe, in European Union, uh, the, the, of course, uh, there are the increases. Uh, some of them have been, uh, so to say, uh, diminished by the intervention of the state, as you had in Portugal or in Spain. Uh, but uh, such an intervention is very limited and, in fact, uh, does not cover uh, all the, the increases in costs and in cost of living because of the inflation caused by the energy prices. Well, it's very clear that the sanctions against uh, Russia are really backfiring. In fact, they are sanctions against Europe. Uh, and in fact, Emmanuel Macron from France uh, said recently, uh, the age of abundance has ended in, uh, in, in Europe. Well, this is completely responsible because when they say so, they think that they have the public behind them. But in fact, the decision of the European Union to join the United States in all this uh, warmongering and uh, unlimited uh, help to Ukraine in military armaments and so on was not a democratic decision. It was not consulted with, which, which is really uh, remarkable because if you are, we are democracies, then the base is the, the feeling of the voters, uh, the the citizens, and in fact, the citizens were not uh, consulted. They didn't vote for this war. And now, uh, probably, they were victims of, uh, you know, uh, an information war that we are having here in Europe, in which, in fact, we have just one side of the story being told uh, every day. The case that you just uh, mentioned in Czech Republic is hardly news in Europe. I mean, they are trying uh, to hide these things. Uh, the gilets jaunes, that is to say, the, the protests in France, uh, 
are preparing also for demonstrations. This is not part of our news these days because they are trying to cover up all the unrest, uh, discomfort of the populations that now see the consequences, the consequences of this war, which is impoverishment, basically. That's what it is. And in Germany, which is the, the engine of the European Union, you know, the popularity of the prime minister is going down uh, to unprecedented levels. And, and you can see that, uh, you know, there is a movement in the public opinion there uh, moving to the parties that have been less enthusiastic about the, uh, these uh, uh, aggressive politics or these military politics in Ukraine and not the fact that Europe is not struggling for peace as they should do, and in peace, of course, there must be reciprocal concessions. But the European Union, uh, very much subservient uh, to the neocons politics of the United States, is not ready uh, to be open to negotiations based on reciprocal concessions. And Zelensky, of course, is the, uh, the extreme example of this attitude. That's the situation we are living in now, and it's very worrying because, particularly in uh, in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe, uh, the winter is very serious. Not so much more than here in the, in Portugal or Spain, and uh, people are getting worried. I mean, they are, they are buying uh, you know uh, electric uh, heaters, and then the government says, but you know you can't use so many electric heaters, they are creating or trying to build pavilions, warmed up uh, uh, pavilions uh, uh, for the winter, for the people that have not enough money to warm their houses uh, to come for some uh, warm type of atmosphere. They are doing that in uh, Holland and in Germany. Well, this is really a social disaster, and I think... uh, the uh, the consequences will be no good, of course. Certainly. And, you know, one of the consequences that you lay out in your piece is the uh, normalization of Nazism that we've seen uh, since the onset following uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think this is important to hit on because, you know, uh, some of the main groups that we think of uh, within Ukraine that would fit this bill, like the Azov Battalion and the right sector and all these sorts of groups, they were known uh, uh, before the current war in Ukraine. I mean, at least since the U.S. backed uh, Maidan coup in 2014, where, you know, these groups were integrated into certain aspects of the Ukrainian state. But, you know, even though people from uh, the beginning of the war in Ukraine were warning about these elements, I mean, they were brushed off. You know, pe- you know, people were basically accused of being, you know, conspiracists uh, for raising it up. But as it became more and more sort of undeniable that these elements were in fact present, well, it's just sort of a strange silence that seems to have set in around the issue or otherwise it's just sort of brushed off. And so, I mean, how have how have we seen the development of this normalization of uh, Nazism, Professor? And I mean, to be frank, why why is it that this attitude has been taken toward them when the, the danger of this should be obvious? Of course. I mean, it's very disquieting, uh, I think, in Europe after all the uh, the, the recent history of Europe. But what you see there is that, in fact, the, the people in Europe were very concerned about the rise of neo-Nazi groups in uh, in Ukraine because uh, it's the only country 
in which the Nazi groups that probably exist, um, you know, all over Europe as they exist in the United States. But in Ukraine, it was the only country in which the neo-Nazis were integrated in the, the National Guard, in, in part of the armed forces. And therefore, uh, even NATO was worried about that. There is a, a report in, in, uh, in 2019 by the Atlantic Institute, which is a think tank, an informal think tank of NATO, in which they were concerned about that. It's curious because that article, that study, I think is by a Ukrainian guy, and, and in fact, uh, there was a formal reason uh, or argument to say that we're not terrorists, because in fact, according to current international understanding, neo-Nazi groups are terrorist groups, right? But they tell, well, this, this, this cannot be considered terrorists because they, they are integrated in the, in, in the regular army. But they were very concerned about that. Well, now uh, they are the patriots. Uh, they are the ones that are protecting Zelensky, the state, uh, all the, you know, the, the, the security around them and so on. So it's really whitewashing and normalizing the presence. And in, in, they are being armed by Europe. <laughs> in fact, they are being armed by the Germans <laughs> that, uh, that, in fact, got rid of neo-Nazis after after the Second World War. Uh, and we know that during the, the, the period that led to the Second World War, it was quite a co complex, the situation of neo-Nazis in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, through the groups around the Bandera, which is now a hero. It's a national hero now in Ukraine. And in fact, they are uh, Ukrainian youth groups in the United States. So it has been uh, in the news recently uh, in which Bandera is the great uh, hero for uh, for this uh, young group. So it is quite um, disturbing that what would be the consequence. It looks like that uh, these groups uh, are behind all the extreme right politics of uh, Zelensky now. I'm not saying that Zelensky was, well, he's a Jew. Um, there was good reasons to believe that he would be against he was elected, but you know, by great majority when he was elected, to bring about peace uh, with uh, with Russia, uh, and particularly in Donbas, uh, uh, you know, and that was the the, the major uh, electoral uh, point of his electoral uh, program, and uh, you know, everything has been forgotten now, and I think uh, that he is now an instrument of these uh, extremist groups. Uh, and um, if the war is going to continue, it is likely that we're going to continue because the continuation of the war does not depend on Ukraine or, or, or in the United States or in European Union. It uh, depends only on the attitude of the United States. Uh, and as we all know, it will end whenever it is convenient for the United States for internal reasons. Uh, be they the elections in 2024 or later, you know, internal reasons always decide the foreign policy of the United States, as we saw recently in uh, in, uh, the, in Afghanistan. So I don't know. And the European Union is worried. Worrying for me is that the European Union has no autonomy to decide whatsoever in this case and uh, is already suffering the consequences of this war. And I don't know. The future of democracy is quite uncertain all of a sudden. 
when we we see that, uh, curiously enough, are the extreme right groups, for instance, in Germany, <clears throat> the ones that are less enthusiastic about the invasion. And then in Europe also, you know, Viktor Urban, which is not a good, probably a good example of a democratic figure, uh, internally speaking, but is the only one that is uh, dealing the uh, Slovak Republic and other republics having individual deals with Russia to secure the oil and gas at uh, low prices. So you can see that uh, in in the near future we will have, we'll have two kinds of people and states in the in the European Union. In a few states, oil and gas will be will be very cheap. The energy uh, bills will be uh, you know small bills, while in others uh, nearby uh, there will be very high bills. So how they are going to square down all these differences? This, in my view, poses a major challenge to the European Union as a kind of uh, a political uh, regional union. That's another worry that you have to, you know, uh, have in mind at this point. Definitely. And you mentioned Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Professor. And I'm actually curious about how Zelensky has been portrayed to Europe? And I know that's a broad question, but the reason I ask is that here in the United States, uh, I mean, he's been outright celebritized. I mean, he's been able to speak before, you know, major popular award shows. Uh, You know, both him and his wife have been in the covers of a Vogue, sort of a high, you know, uh, a high fashion magazine, if you will, all out of what to me seems like a transparent attempt to, you know, make him seem more uh, sympathetic and perhaps relatable to the American people to try to continue to gin up support for the U.S.'s role in exacerbating of the war in Ukraine itself. And so has there been sort of a similar trend uh, within Europe or what do you see as the image of Zelensky within Europe at this at this point? Well, in Europe is very much the same as uh, as the United States, because the sources of information and the videos probably are the same that we watch in uh, in Europe or in the major networks in the United States, is the patriot, is liberator, uh, resisting an an, uh, unlawful invader, and therefore is a great figure and the champion of uh, of freedom. Well, again, you know, I'm I'm not saying that uh, this guy was not elected. On the contrary, he was, you know, uh, democratically elected, in fact, by, by a great majority, when he was elected, yeah, this program was a piece, as I said, and there was nothing against that. Then came the Pandora Papers, and the Pandora Papers show that uh, in Ukraine, well, the, the part of his wealth and his, uh, the, uh, the company and uh, the, the wife, uh, you know, they have uh, uh, rods of, uh, of wealth that is really being, uh, uh, you know, uh, occulted from the the the, the public. Uh, uh, accounting of Ukraine because it's being uh, hiding in uh, uh, offshores. And there was a scandal. And in fact, when there was a democracy summit, uh, summit that was organized by Biden, uh, in fact, <clears throat> they were aware of that. I mean, they, they even considered that democracy in Ukraine was problematic. Well, it was problematic not just because of the offshore and, you know, 
uh, revenues and so on to evade taxes. Uh, there was many other instances. I mean, the oligarchs, uh, the the fact that there are as many oligarchs in uh, in, uh, in Ukraine as there are in Russia, because uh, the process by which the Soviet the Soviet state was dismantled was basically the same uh, in Ukraine and Russia. It was not the same as uh, as uh, um, uh, Hungary, for instance, or Poland. There we don't have these oligarchs in the same way. But in Russia and in Ukraine, the IMF imposed a privatization, you know, a kind of fire privatizations in which uh, those these people, you know, became very rich from one day to the next. And one of them has been the, the, the protector of uh, Zelensky. Zelensky was a comedian and has a very popular show, and uh, it was paid for by this uh, oligarch that is owner of the one TV channels. And, you know, all this was problematic as a kind of uh, a democratic regime. Uh, in, in 2021, before the revolution, in fact, when Zelensky was really moving to the right and to the extreme right, for instance, was this law, you know, forbidden even the, the, the learning, the teaching in school of, of Russian. Uh, you know, Russian and Ukrainian are very similar languages, and many people in Ukraine uh, Russian-speaking people. So there was really a kind of uh, a non-democratic uh, authoritarian of, of, of law. So there were many signs that we were worried about the type of democratic conviviality that Ukraine was entertaining uh, within a highly heterogeneous uh, state with a lot of people from uh, you know, different languages and different uh, and different origins. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, all this uh, made it very problematic. Then came the invasion, and all of a sudden uh, is a liberator, is uh, the guy that is resisting, is a new Nelson Mandela, is, uh, you know, uh, someone without any, any no criticism. One could even say, well, in fact, he, you know, he's defending his own country, but if he's a patriot, uh, then look at Mandela. I mean, uh, take the comparison all the way. I mean, uh, he, for a while, for instance, was uh, involved in armed struggle, uh, the INC. But then he was really ready to come to a compromise which uh, brought the apartheid to an end. And, of course, the apartheid have many, many mutual concessions to the, the white minority. I mean, these patriots usually are people that sometimes fight the wars uh, because they resist, but then they know uh, when peace is necessary because war is leading to the destruction of the country, of the people, of generations after generations. Well, one would expect uh, that would be the reading of Zelensky, and uh, Zelensky would be the one that would be reading at a given point that it is time to start a negotiation and uh, with Russia, and uh, you cannot do such a negotiation if you consider that the important thing is to destroy Putin, is to, you know, debilitate Russia, which is uh, the U.S., uh, you know, uh, policy in this war. Well, Zelensky is absolutely subservient to this policy, and therefore he'll go uh, for the war as long as the United States want uh, him to do that. And this, uh, uh, that was most uh, 
disturbing that people in Europe are not saying that the courage of this person could be reoriented to protect uh, the integrity of the country, the life of people, by entering a period of peace, particularly in the first moments of the invasion, I think it will be possible to, to reach an honorable uh, uh, peace. Because after all, what was at stake was not you know, a serious thing from an Ukrainian point of view. Neutrality, uh, not to enter the NATO. Well, Austria is not in NATO, and uh, Switzerland is not in NATO. Finland and Sweden were not in NATO. And they were flourishing. I mean, why should that be? And as far as, as uh, Donbass is concerned, I mean, look at the Basque country in Spain. Uh, you know, they are really autonomous. I mean, they are part of the Spanish state, but they are very, very autonomous, even in terms of taxes and so on, taxation. So we could have found an arrangement uh, that would uh, uh, prevent the war or would bring it to an end very fast, and the European Union should be behind that. On the contrary, uh, the, the European Union is really inciting uh, this war and is compromising uh, and, uh, uh, all the future of all the Europeans of a war that was not decided by the European Union, and I don't think it's in uh, the interests of the European Union citizens. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. As always, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, the Associated Press is recently reporting on a, a different local law enforcement agencies from across the U.S. that have been using what they describe as an obscure cell phone uh, a tracking tool, uh, uh, certainly certain times uh, without search warrants, uh, giving a pretty uh, considerable level of ability to, to follow people's movements, even going back months in time in what's uh, described in this piece as, quote, mass surveillance on a budget. So help us understand just what this technology is, Chris, and how it's being utilized uh, by these law enforcement agencies. Sure. This is a product called Fog Reveal, which comes from a company called Fog Data Science. And it's important to note that Fog Data Science has actually been founded uh, in 2016 by former uh, Bush-era Department of Homeland Security officials. So we kind of see where exactly they are coming from and their perspective on you know, privacy and our right to it, which is that we have none. The software allows police to tap into all of the location data that our apps are collecting on us as we just go about our lives and move about the world. So, I mean, we talk, you know, very often that uh, in so many apps on our phones, apps that you wouldn't even think about, 
you know, there's software that can collect your location and then send that back to whoever they want to. And then there's companies like Ventel that collect and put all of, all of that information together. And they do it using things like mobile advertising IDs on your phone, you know, unique identifiers to your phone that aren't necessarily tied to, you know, your name and phone number, but still can be put together once you have a history of where a certain phone has been. It can become very clear, you know, where that person's home or office or school is. This software, Fog Reveal, uses that information from Ventel uh, in order to let cops go to a website and just basically search, uh, I think it's 180 days, back and forward in time to see where phones that were in a specific location were before that and after that. Uh, it's really, really concerning, and I think it, it really shows just the depth of this industry, the mobile surveillance industry, and, and the connection between where, you know, this data collection that primarily has been used for advertising. And I think it's almost even a side effect that it's also being used for, you know, for law enforcement purposes and for surveillance by law enforcement. We have to remember that in, I believe it was 2017, um, in uh in Carpenter v. United States, um, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that police had to get warrants and, you know, they had to have, you know, just cause to go to a cell phone service like AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, whoever, and get information about your cell phone's location. The Supreme Court said that, in effect, the, the cell phone had become an extension of the person because of how often, you know, how just how reliant we are on them. And I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I think it's very clear that you cannot really function in the modern world if you don't have a cell phone, you know, just dealing with, you know, work, transportation, all of those things. Uh, so to get around that, law enforcement has been doing very creative uh, things and private industry has stepped up, unfortunately, to assist them. So we've heard about geofence warrants where they can just go to Google and say, give us a list of all of the people or all of the phones that were in this area at this time. Now they can even go further using this software uh, from Fog and say, all right, we're going to look and see who was around here and then go back and forth, you know, months in time and be able to track those phones. And again, not hard if you have that much information to figure out uh, an address and, you know, or a workplace and then start associating that with people. And this software is not expensive. It's a few thousand dollars a year sometimes, uh, which, you know, as we see police not being defunded, but being more and more funded, uh, they're really, you know, it's not that expensive for uh, departments to get this kind of information. Now, the company Fog, you know, they're being pretty shady about the whole thing. I mean, their entire business is shady, um, but they're, you know, they're not really saying much about where they get the information, but it has been determined that Ventel is one of the data collectors and brokers that they are using. So, for example, the article in AP gives the example that they're actually getting information from, a, from, this, from Starbucks. That's not to say Starbucks is saying, uh, hey, Fog, or hey, Ventel, here's the information. It's that something in their app is sending information to a provider that is then selling the information to Ventel that is then selling it to Fog. I mean, that is the uh, reach uh, that, you know, and then the path that our data goes through every day without us thinking about it. So imagine just, you know, you go and order a coffee 
and all of a sudden, there you are. <laughs> your your information is being tracked by the police. Yeah, definitely. Pretty wild. I mean, it seems all the time we're hearing about how police are utilizing this uh, surveillance uh, technology to track people, oftentimes without a warrant. But uh, switching gears a little bit, Chris, and sort of uh, talking about how uh, a tech sort of connects with uh, issues of foreign policy. I mean, there's uh, been an issue lately here around uh, AI chips and other different chips um, as it concerns uh, China and Russia. And these groups, uh, NVIDIA and AMD, are are actually uh, a warning around uh, the new U.S. export restrictions on these chips. So uh, help us understand better uh, what's going on uh, with this whole issue, Chris, and how the chips factor into these geopolitical dynamics. Sure. So there's a filing, a Form 8K, um, that was uh, submitted by NVIDIA to the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's, you know, pretty standard legalese and, and all of that. But one of the things that's uh, important to note in it is that it says that on August 26th, the gov- U.S. government told uh, NVIDIA that it's imposed, quote, a new license requirement effective immediately for any future to China, including Hong Kong and Russia, of certain products. Uh, and I won't go through the, the product list here. Um, so they're basically not able to sell to China or sell certain products to China or Russia. And NVIDIA goes on to note that the company does not sell products to customers in Russia. And of course, that is a you know direct result of you know the U.S. sanctions and campaign uh, against Russia for the uh, intervention in Ukraine. Well, AMD, who's another chip manufacturer, also received one of these warnings. And this comes back way, way back to the fact that the U.S. is recognizing, particularly that China is on the rise when it comes to technical research and development, that Chinese companies are no longer limited to just manufacturing chips for the United States, that they are actually doing their own work and it is being properly funded um, by the government and by the private sector so that China can be uh, independent and not rely on American technology. Now, that's a long process and it takes time to ramp up the kind of infrastructure and logistics and knowledge that you need to have. So it's not a situation where China tomorrow can be cut off from the entire, you know, U.S. Uh, and really global market for this kind of, of equipment and, and information, but it's something that is is going to impact them while they're still, you know, in that process. So effectively, NVIDIA, AMD, potentially other companies cannot sell advanced processors to uh, to China or to Russia. And I think in the case of Russia, it's really just a matter of the U.S. It's not a matter of, you know, Russia's uh, tech sector, which is, you know, I think, it, it exists, but it's not extremely significant at this point, not compared to at least the U.S. or, or China. Um, but it, when we're looking at the way that, you know, they've really pitted these uh, or, you know, put in place these restrictions, um, my, my major, you know, concern about the geopolitical aspect is with China because the Russia uh, limitations are more of a short term, um, you know, during this, this conflict in Ukraine. So, when it comes to China, uh, you know, there, there has been so many, so many moves. I mean, just this year, a few months ago over the summer, uh, Congress passed the CHIPS Act. And what that does is it actually just provides uh, tax incentives and research grants and manufacturing grants uh, to 
semiconductor companies. This has been extremely uh, pushed and supported by the SIA, the Semiconductor Industry Association in the United States that represents companies like NVIDIA and Intel and many others. Uh, And it's all based on the idea that the U.S. is losing its footing uh, in order to, you know, in in the world semiconductor, the silicon industry. Um, It's Looking at it, you know, it's the U.S. and SIA says this. The U.S. share of commercial semiconductor manufacturing has declined from 37 percent in 1990 to 12 percent today. And that's a direct result of the fact that of a couple facts. One, that the U.S. U.S. companies have relied on uh, on cheaper labor and cheaper uh, parts in other countries in order to, you know, build their uh build their chips and, and their infrastructure, uh, and also that other countries like China are investing and doing the work to build up their own national uh, interests here. So not surprising at all to see that the U.S. government has passed and, you know, this CHIPS Act, which over the summer, and they're basically giving, I mean, it's a 25% investment tax credit. I mean, that's a huge tax credit to what they say incentivize semiconductor manufacturing. That's just a a huge tax credit that is going to uh, these chip companies in the U.S. in hopes that they will be able to, in their words, stay competitive. But really the goal is to overtake and uh, replace China. So when we can't look at the fact that the the U.S. is putting these restrictions on AI-related uh, you know, semiconductors to China and to Russia without looking at that longer context. And I do want to note, by the way, the market is not really liking this. Um, you know, NVIDIA and uh, AMD are both down around 25% in the last month with the major drip uh, or dip starting on August 25th. So once word about these restrictions started coming around, these two chip manufacturers really started taking a hit uh, in the in the stock market. Uh, Intel, by the way, Intel, which is the one you might know the most, also similarly uh, hit pretty significantly. Yeah, definitely. And while we're on the the issue of sort of international uh, uh, tech developments, um, you know, Lighthouse Reports uh, recently published a piece on uh, a major surveillance outfit operating uh, inside the European Union that uh, they even describe as Europe's NSO. And so uh, what is going on uh, with this network, Chris, and uh, how deep does it does its reach go? Yeah, it's so interesting uh, to see this story uh, in Lighthouse reports, particularly after some news that NSO Group is, uh, they're not shutting down, but they're kind of re-architecting their business. There's going to be some uh, staff changes, some layoffs and things like that. And I think that is a direct result of the uh, exposés that have been done on NSO over the last uh, couple of years and everything we found out about that, that nefarious company. But this one really shows that this isn't just one company, right? Just like with the data brokers, it's not just one company who's responsible and we can say, well, shut that company down and everything will be better. It goes, there's this entire industry and it's a global industry of building software and equipment that lets governments spy on people, lets corporations spy on people, take over their phones. Uh, track them, figure out where they are. There is no responsibility here. There is no accountability. There is absolutely nothing uh, that really regulates anything that these companies do. And, you know, we have to remember often these companies, their their business model is is effectively to find security problems in the products and the software that we all use every day 
and not report them to the company, but instead to find ways to exploit them so that they can, for example, take over a phone and see everything you're doing on it without you even knowing. All you have to do maybe is get a text message that they have sent that takes advantage of a security bug, um, and all of a sudden their software is on your phone. So what what this story is about one in particular called Tyke Lab. It says that they've targeted uh, people in Malaysia, Costa Rica, Iraq, Portugal, Italy, Libya, Greece. I mean, really, this is, if you look at uh, the list of countries here, I mean, yes, there are some European countries, but many of these countries, targets of Western imperialism as well, targets of, uh, you know, regime change attempts, war, sanctions. Uh, I mean, really, this entire industry needs to be shut down. There needs to be global acknowledgement uh, at the, you know, at the international level that these companies are enemies of privacy and safety and that they need to be shut down and no country should allow them to exist uh, and, and function like this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. There's a lot there. I mean, I mean, it's frankly pretty scary because I know we talk a good bit here on um, tech for the people uh, in terms of just how deep uh, surveillance is in the United States. And clearly the U.S. is is not uh, alone in that. And, you know, uh, just I think so important to keep our eyes on these developments, particularly as we look for ways to organize to stop it. But we thank you so much, as always, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, September 6, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can hit us up here on the show, because at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can also follow us on social media at Twitter, twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Bryce Green, contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And we're happy to have you today, Bryce. And, you know, recently, 
we've been seeing uh, different pieces from the media marking the anniversary, the year since uh, uh, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. And it's been pretty noteworthy, I think, to sort of take note of uh, uh, what to me seems like the deep revisionist history that a lot of corporate-owned media platforms are pushing, not only in terms of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan uh, uh, in general, but also kind of the the whitewashing and covering up of the serious impacts that um, have been happening on the people of Afghanistan in the year since the U.S. withdrew, which, of course, uh, uh, triggered the rise in power of the Taliban. And so in ways I think direct and indirect, uh, 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 the U.S. um, involvement in Afghanistan has seen a number of ripple effects that the people of Afghanistan will be feeling for some time. But you don't really get a sense for that uh, uh, when you consume some of these mainstream platforms. And you recently published a piece about this, Bryce, on FAIR entitled uh, NPR Devotes Almost Two Hours to Afghanistan Over Two Weeks and 30 Seconds to U.S. Starving Afghans. And so I was hoping you could help us understand, Bryce. Bryce, uh, uh, what has this coverage of Afghanistan looked like in uh, recent weeks and why uh, such short shrift paid to the involvement of Washington? Right. So uh, about a year ago, we started seeing the the headlines about the U.S. withdrawal. Um, We started seeing uh, stories about how the Taliban were uh, advancing around the city or around the uh, around the countryside. And you know, there were denials from the U.S. that this would really have any long-term effects. Um, the U.S. was finally getting out of Afghanistan after 20 years of a long invasion. And then the Taliban were at the gates of Kabul, and the U.S. media started losing their minds because the U.S. withdrawal wasn't complete, and it wasn't as orderly as it might have been. Now, a-, a lot of people have thrown a lot of shade on Joe Biden for doing this. Uh, they claim that Biden's you know, hurried withdrawal of Afghanistan. That's usually the the term that's the terminology that's used. Um, But what they leave out completely is that the U.S. had a year and a half to finalize plans for actually getting out of Afghanistan because the the only reason we're getting out of Afghanistan was because of a deal made between Trump and the Taliban. And the reason that the military didn't adequately prepare to actually leave and they didn't have they were caught off guard by the quote-unquote hurried withdrawal was that they refused to make any plans to actually withdraw uh they expected that after trump left office that biden would either reverse or indefinitely delay trump's plan of withdrawal and biden to his credit uh actually did go along with the withdrawal uh and so then you see the the scenes from the kabul airport that we all remember and so now here a year later, uh, a lot of coverage is focusing on, well, how has, how has Afghanistan changed since the Taliban takeover? And we all know the Taliban are one of the U.S. official enemies. And so a lot of the focus was on how bad of a job the Taliban are doing. Most specifically was the focus on the plight of Afghan women. You know, the Taliban are notoriously uh, uh, radically religious. And they use they use religious law when governing, and so there's been a significant rollback of rights of women under the Taliban rule. You know they can't go to school, some of them can't leave the house, uh, and so that's really what the the focus has been on. 
But there's a deeper story to what's going on in Afghanistan since the U.S. withdrawal, and that's the fact that the U.S. has been exacerbating a massive humanitarian crisis. Ninety percent of the population of Afghanistan doesn't have enough to eat. Sixty percent of the people in Afghanistan are suffering from acute hunger. And there are several million people who are actually literally on the brink of starvation. And this is according to the U.N., the Red Cross and other human rights agencies. So what, there hasn't really been that much coverage about the fact that people are starving, the fact that people are being forced to boil grass in order to get nutrients. But there has been focus about the shortcomings of the Taliban government. Now, now why is that? Well, if the U.S. were to paint an accurate picture of, if U.S. media were to paint an accurate picture of what's going on in Afghanistan, then they'd be forced to reckon with the fact that the U.S. government is making this crisis worse. Right after the withdrawal, uh, the U.S. froze billions of dollars in reserves uh, in the Afghan Central Bank. When the Taliban took over the country, they found that they only had access to a small fraction of 1% of Afghans' banking reserves. So what this means is that the Afghan banking system cannot function, even though a lot of the personnel who were running the bank before are still there, still doing uh, as much of a job as they can. But the U.S. has decided to uh, freeze all that money and help collapse the Afghan economy. So you have economic collapse exacerbated by the U.S., uh, which leads to a humanitarian crisis exacerbated by the U.S. But the U.S. media doesn't want to talk about that. They don't want to be critical of the U.S. government. They want to be critical of the Afghan government, of the Taliban. And so a major story about the U.S. deliberately starving people is uh, sort of whitewashed. It's erased from the public discussion. Uh, instead, we talk about what should the U.S. do uh, to help the Afghan girls. And I always say that for every story about the Afghan girls, now that's an important story, uh, the rollback of rights, the plight of women, that's an important story. But for every story about those women, there should be at least one story about how the U.S. is deliberately trying to starve those same women and the rest of the country to boot. Um, but you don't see that in the media. And it's pretty striking. Not at all. And it was uh, so transparently opportunistic to me. All these uh, crocodile tears that the U.S. government supposedly had for uh, Afghan women and girls, which was just, you know, deeply hypocritical for all the reasons that you laid out there, Bryce. And it's kind of an interesting tact that uh, uh, the U.S. government and these corporate owned media platforms has taken because, I mean, I think they were very clear that, you know, the Taliban are a pretty uh, unsympathetic uh, group, to say the very least. I don't know anyone that would, you know, uh, consider them some kind of a uh, crusading or, or heroic force in that country, but that also provides a convenient cover for the crimes of the United States, both in the 20 years of that invasion and in the aftermath, which I think is directly connected to this piece about uh, the denial, the long-term effects of the invasion that you were speaking to before. And so, you know, um, I also have to wonder then, Bryce, and this may be a, a sort of difficult question to ask, but when we talk about this out-and-out -out theft, this, this stealing of billions of dollars from the Afghan Central Bank 
uh, which of course in substance means stealing it from the uh, Afghan people. But, you know, then the U.S. turning around and saying that, I don't know, they're going to you know dole it back out in some kind of way. And so, I, I you know, it, it brings one to the question of why. Why basically hold this money hostage? Why uh, steal this money from the Afghan people when they're in the midst of a severe economic crisis, just one of uh, many different economic, uh, cri- uh, excuse me, one of many different crises that uh, that country is grappling with largely to uh, largely through uh, this war. You know what I mean? It's just what is Washington's angle and continuing to orient towards Afghanistan in this way from your perspective? Uh, right. So it's probably, uh, you know, you can't get inside the heads of these policymakers. Sometimes they'll be honest about what they want. But uh, with the with U.S. sanctions in general, uh, the goal is often to destabilize the country to the point where it becomes ungovernable and that there are factions within the country who are opposed to the current government that will utilize that crisis and, you know, take uh, take charge. That was the plan in Venezuela. We hope that sanctions against Venezuela would would turn the people against Nicolas Maduro. Uh, we hope that sanctions against Iran would turn people uh, against the Iranian government. We hope that sanctions against Russia will turn the Russian people against their government. And so the goal is consistently to make the situation on the ground so unbearable for average people that they'll turn against the government that the U.S. is targeting. And so that's part of the reason that a lot of this coverage of the Afghan girls about, like, NPR was doing their series. They were asking the question, who is included in the new Afghanistan? Uh, you know, deploying that sort of liberal language that uh, people are familiar with. But if you don't tell the whole story, you don't tell the story about how the United States is trying to sanction these people, trying to starve these people, you don't understand that the U.S. actually doesn't care about those people. They couldn't care less whether or not the you know 90% or 100% of the Afghan population is dying of starvation. What they care about is their own geopolitical goals. And even now, you know, you see coverage of... Uh, some Afghan rebels, the son of uh, of the old Northern Alliance chief, Ahmad Shah Massoud. Uh, you're seeing a lot of interviews with him, uh, and he's being billed as, you know, the, the man who's going to save Afghanistan, the man who's going to start another insurgency and remove the Taliban from power. So there seems to be a lot of seeds being planted about a potential uh, uprising against the Taliban. Um, and that seems to be being fueled by these destabilization tactics, uh, like freezing the reserves uh, and like increasing sanctions. Now, to be fair to the United States, uh, they are spending billions of dollars on humanitarian aid. Uh, but, you know, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Red Cross, all of them have been clear that there is no amount of aid that will substitute for actually restarting and resuscitating the Afghan economy, something the U.S. is preventing from happening. Uh, now, one of the more perverse tactics uh, of the United States government in this case has been to say that, okay, you know, well, we stole $7 billion of Afghan's central reserves. So we're going to give half of that back to Afghanistan in the form of aid, which I already explained was completely inadequate to stop the destruction of the economy and the, the suffering of the people. And the other half, they're going to give to the, the families of 9-11 victims in a settlement that was uh, uh, apparently being reached between the, the families and uh, foreign governments. Uh, and so they're giving $3.5 billion, or they're, they at least tried to. They tried to give $3.5 billion to families of victims of 9-11. And this brings me to something I caught earlier in NPR's coverage, which is 
using this whole uh, uh, 9-11 tragedy to justify a lot of suffering on the Afghan people. Steve Inskeep, in his NPR coverage, he actually said that the reason that the the whole reason that the U.S. went into Afghanistan was because uh, the Taliban had refused to give up Osama bin Laden, um, and that's who the U.S. fingered as the uh, the culprit of the 9/11 attacks. Well, the history of that is a lot more complicated. Even before the 9/11 attacks, the relationship between Al Qaeda, you know, the terrorist group that Osama bin Laden was in charge of. The relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban was actually extremely contentious. Even though al-Qaeda was taking refuge in Afghanistan, the Taliban had repeatedly offered to put bin Laden on trial uh, or to give him up to a third country. Um, And like I said, this was before 9-11. And even after 9-11, the Taliban reissued those offers. They said again, you say uh, Osama bin Laden was in charge of this horrible terrorist attack. Okay, well, give us evidence, and we will uh, arrange for him to be sent to a neutral third country, or we could put him on trial ourselves. Well, what was the U.S. response to that? Uh, The response was silence. The the U.S. said, no, we are not going to negotiate with you. Um, We want you to hand over bin Laden without evidence, without any due process, meet our demands now, or we'll start bombing. Well, even after the U.S. started bombing, devastating the country, the Taliban said, okay, we'll still give up bin Laden. We don't even need evidence anymore. Just tell us what to do. We'll give them, we'll give them up. Uh, but again, the U.S. said no. Our goal is to remove you from power now. And so this idea that the U.S. went in to invade Afghanistan because the Taliban refused to give up bin Laden is just fiction. It's just fiction. It's what the Bush administration pushed. It's what a lot of mainstream media pundits pushed. But it's not the fact. And it's pretty ridiculous that NPR would just repeat that, even 20 years later, giving the Bush administration talking points for them. From the start, you can see that the U.S. destruction of Afghanistan had nothing to do with any concern for the Afghan people. It had nothing to do with any concern for the victims of 9-11. And it had everything to do with U.S. plans for dominance on the Eurasian continent. I mean, we remember the Bush administration was largely made of neoconservative hawks who had, you know, their claim to fame was saying that we need forward-facing bases in, you know, America's quest to dominate the world. And so that's what this is all about. But, you know, you don't hear any of that in the Western coverage. They repeat U.S. propagandistic talking points, uh, you know, uncritically. And that seems to be the state of modern media. Yeah, unfortunately, I do think that's the case, Bryce. And, you know, when it boils right down to it, even if we look at the government sort of rhetoric, whether in Afghanistan or any uh, other uh, theaters we could point to around the world, there's rhetoric around, you know, like humanitarian intervention and defending human rights and democracy and all those sorts of things. You know, in the case of Afghanistan, it just feels like there was a very purposeful uh, sort of effort to basically cover up the fact that what the U.S. has done, uh, even if we just talk about Afghanistan's economy, that all of that was really quite deliberate. Like the And, and the suffering, it was sort of incidental to uh, the decision makers in Washington. But they have to give it this sort of humanitarian facade to basically sell it to the people of the U.S. and the West, I think we could expend it to, as, you know, some necessary thing. Because, of course, like, like 
like with so many other things, if they were to be honest about their actual interest in wanting to have that control over the region, well, not only would they uh, not have support from the American people, but they would actually be met with resistance. And so I feel like that fundamental aspect of things and the role the media uh, plays in that is really a core aspect, you know? Uh, you're exactly right. Part of what I looked at in my study of Afghanistan coverage was I went back to the period right after the U.S. withdrawal and right after the U.S. decided to steal all those central bank reserves. Well, how did the media portray that? What did they say? They said that, oh, the U.S. is doing this because then it has leverage over the Taliban in order to get them to make a more inclusive government. You know, they say that we wanted to make things better for the people of Afghanistan. So our plan is to starve the people of Afghanistan in order to get their government to behave properly. Uh, does that even make any sense to, to you know, a seven-year-old? No. It's, it's, pure, it's, purely an, it's purely geopolitical interest. It's transparently false. And the fact that the media keeps repeating it means you have to start asking, what is the point? of the media is there a go- is there a point to be adversarial against the against the power structures that be that's probably how they see themselves but uh i i even tagged npr and in, in my piece i i sent it sent it over to their uh, one of their twitter accounts because i said you know i know a lot of you probably think that you're you know hard hitting reporters that you're kind compassionate people uh and you're you take your job seriously but why did you refuse to spend any amount of time on the fact that the U.S. government is deliberately starving Afghanistan? Uh, and, you know, I haven't gotten any response yet, but uh, they really need to do some soul searching. And that's why alternative media like, uh, like this station, like others, like FAIR, uh, is so important for people to include in their media diet. Otherwise, they'll be full of you know, ridiculous notions about how the world works. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Bryce Green. And Bryce, we've been discussing about the role that uh, corporate-owned media plays and uh, really whitewashing and engaging in revisionist history as it concerns uh, uh, the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan and really the U.S.'s history in Afghanistan in general, but also feel like we're seeing the exact same process uh, play out in real time um, as it concerns uh, the war in Ukraine. And I feel like that this is something that started even in the period uh, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but certainly in the, the time since 
even around just the basic facts and context and history um, around the war itself in terms of, you know, describing it to this day, describing it as, you know, a quote unquote unprovoked action and uh, all these sorts of things. And so, again, we see this um, uh, erasure of uh, the role of, of of Washington in all these events, not just, uh, you know, since February 24th, but really historically, uh, both in, in Russia, going back quite some time. You know what I mean? And so I just don't think it's a coincidence that um, the, the, the real motivation for U.S. foreign policy in a number of ways are often obscured to the American people. I mean, we maintain here on the show that the people of the United States are some of if not the most propagandized people on earth. But uh, a lot of us seem to think that we're really quite uh, uh, well-informed. But when when we think about what really constitutes um, common knowledge or common wisdom or even what we consider common sense, these things don't exist in a vacuum, right? I mean, they're the result of um, uh, uh, material factors. And in this sense, in this particular case, it's these incessant sort of uh, uh, basically a government narratives that are being regurgitated through platforms that we are taught to uphold and revere as uh, objective and unbiased and things like that. And so, you know, you know, I'm just wondering how you sort of see this similar trend uh, like we saw with Afghanistan playing out as uh, the war in Ukraine continues to unfold, Bryce, because it just feels like there's a lot of parallels to say the very least. I think what you said about Americans being the most propagandized people on earth is exactly right. Um, uh, there's a good quote, I think it might be by uh, Noam Chomsky, about how in a democracy, uh, an ostensible democracy, uh, propaganda is way more important than it is in, you know, uh, so-called authoritarian states. Uh, you know, those countries where they can just, like, gun you down without any, uh, without any pretext, it's, it's very different. Propaganda is a lot less important. Uh, but in here, where public consent, or at least apathy, is almost essential to any government actions, propaganda is probably one of the most important things that a government has at its disposal. Uh, it's the only way they can shape minds. It's the only way they can manufacture consent for their policies. And I was writing about this even before the war in Ukraine, about how uh, they were doing the same thing. They were distorting history, omitting important facts uh, in favor of a narrative that really supported the U.S. policy goals. Uh, for example, I mean, you do hear all the time people saying that the war on Ukraine was unprovoked. Uh, and this just leaves out so much history. It's it's downright false. Uh, for example, no one in those discussions, they talk about how uh, the U.S. government helped overthrow the government of Ukraine in 2014 and replaced it with a, a U.S.-friendly government, a uh, U.S.-friendly government that started you know, taking out IMF loans, uh, opening up their markets to Western investors, uh, billions of dollars of Western capital flooded into Ukraine after 2014. Uh, and this was even after Russia had made it clear that they don't want the U.S. meddling in Ukraine. Russia views Ukraine as a vital strategic asset. Uh, it'd, be like if the, if, it'd be like if Russia started, uh, you know, tried to overthrow the government of Mexico and then started sending troops and bases and doing military training with Mexico, all with the all while saying how much they need to counter the United States. Well, that's exactly what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. had for years 
been trying to pull Ukraine out of the Russian sphere of influence and move it into the Western sphere of influence. Uh, you know, you saw this right before 2014 um, when they offered Ukraine an integration package. Uh, well, the, the president of Ukraine at the time, he rejected the, the package in favor of a Russian package. And within months, he was ousted in a violent coup. Uh, so that none of that factors in uh, to mainstream discussions about the war in Ukraine. Um, but just think, how would the U.S. respond? How would the U.S. respond in that situation? And so for years, the U.S. kept bolstering this anti-Russian Ukrainian government. They kept sending weapons. They kept uh, doing military trainings, uh, setting up, further integrating the Ukrainian military into NATO. Uh, all the while, uh, the Russians were trying to push for a peaceful settlement to the whole situation. The U.S. Uh, kept fueling Ukraine's uh, belligerence. And so none of this gets factored into the discussion. Uh, when Russia invaded uh, in, uh, in February, they were clear about a way to de-escalate the situation. They were clear about a pathway uh, to a peace settlement. They said that, you know, Ukraine needs to remain neutral. Uh, what was the U.S. response to these pleas? They said that, no, we will never compromise the integrity of NATO. Even though they had no plans of uh, immediately inviting Ukraine into NATO, they said that we're going to keep the door open. Uh, it was basically spitting in the face of Russians who said that we have security concerns. Um, and so the invasion, the invasion happened. The American media, they just ignored all of that history. Uh, and they said that, oh, Russia just wants to take over the world. Russia is the new Hitler, and we need to band together to fight the new Hitler. Well, I, I mean, like, like, like we said, like, that's just propaganda meant for children. The reality is more complicated. In fact, there are several U.S. foreign policy experts who warned of this exact same thing. In fact, our current CIA director, William Burns, he was actually the ambassador to Russia in 2008, and WikiLeaks leaked a cable that he sent back to the U.S., and it was called Niet Means Niet, Russian Red Lines on NATO Expansion. Um, and basically, the cable was talking about how Russia won't tolerate any sort of... Uh, NATO integration in Ukraine. Uh, if they did, if, if NATO was more involved in Ukraine, it could force a split in Ukrainian society, it, even a violent split, in which case Russia would be forced to intervene. And uh, Burns ends this cable by noting that this is something that Russia does not want to do. Uh, and so, you know, the, the stage was set. Either the U.S. could keep harassing Russia or they could try and seek out a peaceful settlement. Well, they chose to keep harassing them, and this led to this brutal war. Now, I'm not saying that Russia's invasion is justified. It's brutal, illegal, and uh, there were likely several avenues that Putin could have chosen instead of embarking on this campaign of destruction. Um, but that's beside the point. What matters in the United States is what our government has done to make the situation worse and what our government could do to make it better. Uh, so we should start focusing on this important history, uh, and that should animate our activism and our organizing about 
where we should go from here. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you're touching on something. It's a point that I think has been completely lost. And, you know, uh, you know, so much gets lost, of course, in the fog of war. But it's this uh, this attitude, this orientation from the U.S. government that in substance says that no other country is allowed to have their own national interest. Right. Only the U.S. And so certainly not the countries that the U.S. deems to be enemies, whether it be um, Russia or China or Iran or uh, uh, whoever. Uh, Under no circumstances should anything that those governments and the people they represent um, at no point should they be able to actually advocate and fight uh, for their own interest. Whatever happens, it has to be, you know, within the context of what's most favorable to the U.S. government. And you know what's been so wild about this whole uh, uh, period since uh, uh, the, the, the war in Ukraine broke out, Bryce, is about how from the standpoint of the U.S. and the West, right, We've we've heard this steady um, narrative around, you know, combating, quote unquote, disinformation and things like that. I mean, it didn't just begin after the invasion of Ukraine, but it's really been ratcheted up in the time since uh, February when when this first broke out. Um, and so out, out of a, a supposed effort to combat uh, disinformation or misinformation, we've seen a, a serious censorship campaign. I mean, we've seen platforms like Sputnik and RT be uh, deplatformed uh, in a number of ways, um, even uh, alternative media platforms that don't that that aren't a, a state media um, uh, supported like, uh, you know, Mint Press News or Consortium News and places like that have had their, you know, PayPal accounts are restricted and all these uh, sorts of things. So it, it's wild because the U.S., here it is telling its people that, well, we're doing this to protect you when in reality all they're doing is disallowing any sort of um, a narrative that contradicts that, that which is flowing from a, a Washington, which to me seems like a, a pretty clear uh, kind of contradiction. You know what I mean? And so it's an interesting sort of sleight of hand that, that I think is also directly connected to how um, we uh, over the years have seen a kind of tapering off, um, you know, that that I think blossomed into a complete blockade, a complete blackout, if you will, of any kind of dissenting voice as it pertains to U.S. foreign policy. I mean, once upon a time, you might see uh, some kind of anti-war activist or organizer on a a major platform here and there. But I mean, now, I mean, forget about it. It's not even something that's even uh, remotely considered. I mean, these are um, ideas and views and perspectives that have just been completely disappeared and invisibilized in uh, the mainstream arena, and therefore it does not enter into the consciousness of the American people. And so to me, I just think it sort of highlights the profoundly political nature of media and journalism as we know it. And I think that that's why so many people are asking the same question that you asked earlier. Bryce is like, well, is this what passes for journalism in the United States to where these platforms that are owned and operated by uh, uh, billionaires who generally take their cues from uh, the White House or from the, the, the sort of centrist leadership, the neoliberal leadership of the Democratic Party. And uh, with this 24-7 
nonstop uh, a news cycle. This is what is pummeling the consciousness um, of the American people. And, and I'm almost off on a rant now, uh, Bryce, but it's just a sort of uh, hypocrisy of it all continues to be pretty striking, particularly when it's clear that uh, the real agenda here is that of, you know, the uh, sort of Washington elite, if you will, that wing of the ruling class, oftentimes to the detriment of the rest of us. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. I mean, this this issue of like misinformation and censorship. I mean, you mentioned Mint Press News and Consortium News, like having their their PayPal accounts attacked. I mean, like that's that's pretty unprecedented. And note that this isn't the government utilizing its uh, you know its own prerogatives to directly censor. These are private corporations, and you know the U.S. government is probably one of the most corporate controlled uh, governments on planet Earth. And uh, the fact that they're wielding this power over the information sphere uh, is pretty striking. I mean, that's how also how, you know, RT got booted off. I mean, it was a private, uh, you know, new uh, t- television carriers. They made the decision themselves to cut off uh, RT. Uh, and, and so all this censorship is done in the name of preventing misinformation is having the effect of creating an information silo. And, you know, like we keep saying, Americans are the most propagandized people on Earth. The only, the only information that they get now is things that follow the official narrative. And just look at how much flack there is when someone in the mainstream deviates from this norm, right? I mean, Henry Kissinger, he, you know, there's no one to write home about. He's one of the biggest war criminals alive today. But he came out in opposition to the U.S. policy of fueling this war. He said that the U.S. should seek a negotiated settlement. I mean, it was insane. You've never seen this many people turn against Henry Kissinger ever before. And this is when he's saying something completely sane. I mean, you saw it when Amnesty International released a pretty mild report about how Ukrainian military was using civilian structures for military purposes, which is illegal in laws in times of war. Um, and Amnesty International was pummeled. They were called misinformation. Uh, you know, there were all these think pieces about how Amnesty International is helping fuel Russia's disinformation. Well, if you take their definition of disinformation, what that means is that any narrative or any fact that could be put into a narrative that challenges what the U.S. State Department is saying. And that's pretty, that's pretty scary. I mean, especially when you consider that a lot of state-funded media in Ukraine uh, is funded by the United States government through the National Endowment for Democracy. And so many of those people who, you know, work in those state-funded newsrooms, they get put on Western mainstream press. They get on CNN. They get interviews with the Washington Post. And, and no one says that, hey, these guys are, you know, being paid by the U.S. government um, as part of an arm of the U.S. government that was once described as a CIA network built, uh, a propaganda network built by the CIA. Uh, so that's what the National Endowment for Democracy funds. They're funding all these newsrooms, and they're funding all these uh, publications. And the people at those publications, they get pulled on Western TV as, you know, quote-unquote, independent journalists in Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, they're actually part of the same propaganda apparatus that the U.S. seems to be so scared of. So, so there, there, there's a lot of different levels of irony and hypocrisy going on here, and it's is really enough to boggle the mind. It'll make you crazy if you think about it too hard. I mean, it's astounding. 
Yeah, that's a fact. And, and you know, raising um, the, the NED and their role in all of this, I think, is important because, you know, this is yet another example of a very, you know, innocuous, innocent sounding NGO, the National Endowment for Democracy. I mean, who doesn't like democracy? But in truth, this is the, the regime change wing of the U.S. government. And that looks like a lot of different ways. It absolutely looks like um, the promotion of these so-called, you know, independent media platforms and journalists and experts who get brought on to these uh, uh, major platforms and are quoted and are sort of held up as the, um, you know, a, a legitimate voices on a particular issue. But in truth, it is all part and parcel of broader regime change efforts on behalf of the U.S. government as a means of ongoing uh, imperialist control. And uh, the, the Amnesty International piece that you raised, I think, is particularly noteworthy because in truth, at least in my humble opinion, I mean, Amnesty International, my biggest knock against them is that they basically never deviate from uh, the, the Washington consensus and almost all follow and almost always follow um, whatever the line is uh, emerging from, you know, whatever administration happens to be in place at that time. And so to accuse them of being, <clears throat> excuse me, of being uh, Russian misinformation uh, mongers, if you will, <clears throat> I think says a lot about just where we are uh, as it regards the media and foreign policy and why uh, you know we really have to fight for such change. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Bryce Green is here as we continue. And we've got a caller on the line here. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. Hi, Bryce. Uh, nice to be on again. Um, I wanted to talk about Chile and the constitutional vote. Because um, I'm hearing there's some backlash to, to the I guess, the vote, quote-unquote, failing, but the backlash has different, I guess, ideological spectrums. And some that I've been hearing, um, one in particular stands out to me that warrants, I think, that would be best to investigate a bit more is um, Aukan Ulkaman. He's like a politician for the indigenous Mapuche people, which are mostly located in southern Chile. And he was saying that the Constitution vote was not for the Mapuche people, actually. They were they don't think it's legitimate because Mapuche are sovereign people, and who is the Chilean government to say how they should conduct their business on their land, or they are, how do you say, it, it presumes that they are citizens rather than sovereigns. And so they've been having complaints about the Constitution because as much as it was, you know, put forward as being, uh, I guess, for Indigenous people, 
he pointed out that actually the language was, was quite vague. And he mentioned that the Chilean government is actually militarily occupying southern Chile. And when I looked this up, it turns out to be true, actually. There's been some news reports. Whether it gets attention is, 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 is another thing. But this occupation of Chile is quite centuries old, too, even, because if anyone knows, Chile has um, still remaining, like, copper and nitrate or nitrium. There are some mineral resources and alloys that are so useful in there. And it'd be interesting to see what, how corporations or mining corporations, would they still be extracting from Chile and Mapuche land? So that's something I wanted to bring up because I'm not sure if this was discussed regarding the Constitution and its relation to indigenous people in Chile. Thank you, Sean and Bray. Well, thank you, Tamir. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, just so folks are clear on what uh, she's speaking to here, over the weekend, um, Chile uh, held uh, a vote about whether or not to accept its um, newly drafted uh, uh, constitution because for years they've been living under the constitution that was drafted under the brutal dictatorship of uh, Augusto Pinochet. And it's my understanding that uh, a part of this uh, uh, constitution would be uh, a kind of recognition for Chile's uh, indigenous peoples. It would declare Chile a plurinational state. Now, in terms of the details, I can't really say, but this did, in fact, uh, fail, which was a little surprising to me. I mean, it, uh, you know, of course, from the, the outside looking in, it appears as though there was generally a good deal of support for this. Uh, but of course, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on how this unfolds. But uh, Bryce, don't know how closely you may have been uh, following the Chile issue, but I certainly want to give you the floor if you had anything to add here. All right. Yeah, I haven't been following this uh, too closely, but I, I do know that uh, this process of demo- d- democratic uh, drafting of the Constitution is actually just kind of unprecedented in uh, modern uh, industrial country history. Uh, but that process, it, it doesn't seem to have yielded uh, results just yet. But that doesn't mean that uh, it should be portrayed as a major failure for uh, any sort of progressive reforms in Chile. Uh, a lot of the reforms in the Constitution uh, were, are still polling pretty well. Um, it just seems to be a, a, an issue of combating, uh, uh, incompatible points of view about how the government is to be run. Um, I don't know anything about the, um, the military occupation that you referenced. I'd have to read up on that. Um, but in the Western press, at least, this is being portrayed as uh, a sort of victory for uh, neoliberalism. E- you know, every progressive failure is treated as like, oh, this is proof that progressivism fails. This is proof that uh, what they're trying to do will never work. But uh, I-, I think the the Western press in this case is being far too pessimistic. I think that uh, given enough time, this democratic process might yield. Uh, an actual constitution. And people were saying that this would be the most legitimate constitution on earth, given the democratic process that led to it. And democracy is hard and there will be votes that fail, but I think there's no reason to, to, uh, you know, dismiss the entire process. 
Yeah, I quite agree, Bryce. I quite agree. And what you're saying, I think, is a very real in terms of what uh, the process of democracy um, can actually look like within different contexts. Because, you know, we we, we discussed the uh, sort of a, a drafting process within Chile, I believe it was last uh, Friday in the lead up to the vote itself. And it's actually pretty incredible. I mean, the level to which uh, people were involved, giving their perspectives and things like this. I mean, it reminds me in a way of uh, when I visited Cuba a few years ago and they were on the tail end of amending their constitution. You know what I mean? And we just have no concept of that in the United States. I mean, just the very idea that there would be some kind of actual democratic process to amend this constitution that has been in place uh, for all this time and is treated as this uh, sacrosanct um, uh, a sort of document that, you know, is is holy and sacred and can never be changed. Like just maintaining it as it is, is, is viewed as being more important than having a constitution that actually reflects the needs of the people as it stands right here, right now. But but I think you're quite correct that um, the process of democracy as we understand it, um, it's not a, a overnight thing. It can be quite messy. There are uh, uh, often disagreements and contradictions addictions and, and conflicts, but this is, in fact, uh, the nature of it. And I actually tend to think that in the U.S., we're sort of kind of sold almost a fantasy of like what democracy is. And I think a lot of that has to do with obscuring about how a lot of the processes within this country actually works. But also, I think there's, you know, there's a way that I think we in the U.S. and the West tend to kind of project our own sort of ideals about uh, uh, democracy onto other places. And I'm not accusing of the caller of this, to be clear, but I just do think that that's uh, sort of genuinely true. And see, I think that this is something that we could actually really learn from a lot of these different processes and efforts that we see uh, happening around the globe. And I want to point out that in a lot of cases, these are efforts that are being driven by social movements um, uh, uh, on the ground. And so I actually feel like there may be a lesson there, Bryce, in terms of how uh, uh, progressive elements, uh, radical left elements and whatnot within the United States about, you know, different ways that we not only engage this question of democracy and how to broaden and and uh, uh, strengthen it, but how to actually build up that kind of, you know, uh, uh, power from a poor and working class people, the very folks who are the most exploited and tend to really feel the brunt of so many of these things, because I think that aspect of it is so crucial if, and, and frankly, uh, you know, not really negotiable if we're talking about making the drastic changes in society that we know is necessary. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, democracy is a process, but it's nice to see uh, new models of democracy being tried around the world. It's uh, it's pretty heartening. Um, I'd be curious to see what the media environment is like. You know, I study a lot, a lot of media, um, and I read some some people were making comments about it. I I don't know uh, how much how true this is or to what extent, but you know, like in any case of any political vote. Uh, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation about what the Constitution actually was and what it would actually do. And, you know, we're used to seeing that sort of thing here in the West where we, where our democracies, you know, uh, it's it's sort of a like a game show, uh, like a popularity contest game show. It might as well be American Idol. Um, 
But, uh, you know, that can have detrimental effects on how democracy actually functions. Uh, and that's why I think it's so important to focus on media environments, right? You can't make informed decisions if you are getting false facts, if you're getting bad information. Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, and so that, that would be an interesting thing to study. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about that, about this, th- this entertainment aspect of media and journalism and, you know, just how it fundamentally impacts, I think, people's consciousness as well. I mean, you look at some of these shows on popular networks like, you know, CNN or MSNBC and uh, even Fox News. And it's like they have these segments that that basically boil down to like just these screaming matches uh, between people. And uh, like you say, it feels like a game show. It can feel like reality uh, uh, television. And when you're consuming it, you don't get the feeling that you're actually being informed. It may hold your uh, uh, attention, but I just I just think it's another sort of sad commentary on the state of mainstream journalism uh, here in the United States. I mean, I think particularly with platforms like um, the New York Times or the Washington Post, who are these, you know, historic outlets who, you know, over time, you know, earned a, a high level of you know, admiration and a legitimacy amongst the American public to where people basically feel that when they consume information from these places and others, that they can more or less uh, uh, take it to the bank. But just given so many things that have really impacted the way media operates uh, in this country and at that level, it just seems like there's no longer the case. And so in some ways, it almost seems like uh, uh, these platforms have substituted actually informing uh, its audience as opposed to basically just being uh, another kind of a circus, something that they could just as easily get from the real housewives or whatever, or Jersey Shore or professional wrestling or just any of these sorts of things. And so it's almost as if journalism has been made into a game of sorts. And it's a game that I feel like the public by and large loses because at the end of the day, uh, they're not being informed so much as, you know, they're having their consent manufactured for whatever the next or ongoing conflict is that the U.S. wants to engage in, you know? Yeah, there's a big a big component to uh, how I try and look at the news is that a lot of them have just decided to take sides in the various uh, cultural or partisan wars that are going on right now. Right, you'll you'll you won't hear anything in the New York Times um, about how good it was that uh, the United States finally got out of Afghanistan. I mean, you might hear it occasionally, uh, you, or that um, that Trump actually got us out of Afghanistan. Um, you, you won't hear anything on Fox News or any other conservative platforms about how good it was that uh, Joe Biden implemented the plan, or how good it is that Joe Biden. Uh, cancel student debt. Um, so a, a lot of it is, uh, since our our political system has been really, really been fueled by the same people that fuel the entertainment industry and that fuel the advertising industry, uh, a lot of it is driven ba- uh, based on, you know, emotional cues or signaling to certain groups. Um, and so then that bleeds into actual journalism. The journalism content then becomes uh, fodder for those wars. Um, you, you don't see any, uh, you can generally predict what the points of view of the various media outlets will be, uh, just based on whether or not the issue is partisan or not. And I think that that's 
pretty much destroying any form of discourse that we can have in our political sphere. Uh, if you put somebody on CNN to say that the war in Ukraine is a proxy war against Russia and that the U.S. should seek out a peaceful settlement, I mean, you'll have people losing their minds. You'll have people calling them a Russian propagandist. You'll have people calling them uh, all sorts of names. Uh, uh, but that's just because they're incapable of uh, having real, legitimate debates. Uh, you pick a side and you stick to it. And it's astounding how much television you can watch and how little you can learn, right? You know, if you sit and read a book for two hours, you know, might, you might learn a thing or two. If you watch, you know, CNN for, you know, 24 hours, uh, there'll be a few talking points that you'll have ingrained in your mind, but the actual minutia and the actual details of what's actually going on, uh, it doesn't really stick in people's minds. And, you know, there have been studies about this, studies that show that, uh, you know, television news consumers are probably some of the least informed people when it comes to certain issues. Uh, and that seems to me by design. Uh, it seems to me that they've decided that their best business model is to be an entertainment thing, complete with, you know, countdowns to certain events, you know, countdowns to a debate, countdown. Like, like it's, it's ridiculous. It's like a, it's like a sport. It's like a sport. Uh, and it really divorces people from the actual stakes of the matter. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, I mean, you know, when we talk about the, the, the business of media, I think that that's a big part of what factors into that as well. And, you know, as such as things continue to sort of uh, operate in this uh, way, Bryce, it's, you know, just painfully clear, painfully clear that, you know, a lot of these um, mainstream media outlets, these corporate-owned platforms, are basically an appendage to uh, U.S. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to U.S. domestic and foreign policy, and very rarely deviate <coughs> from whatever the consensus is emerging out of Washington. And then, as you lay out, <coughs> I think uh, correctly, if one has the audacity to actually want to go up against that narrative, well, I mean, you can be uh, pretty duly uh, punished and intensely so. And I feel like the intensity of uh, how people can be attacked for simply offering a dissenting view or a differing view, I tend to think it's directly connected to the fact that uh, U.S. imperialism knows that it's in danger. It knows that it's in decline. And it feels uh, for the first time in a long time a kind of real competition from uh, countries like uh, China and Russia and things like this. And uh, there's a real fear, I think, in that wing of the ruling class about the U.S. losing its control over the world and losing its footing as the world hegemon. And so Therefore, this kind of information warfare that we've been discussing this hour is positively necessary and I think deeply connected to the rot that has set in um, as it pertains uh, to this country in so many ways. I mean, the social, political and economic decay that has set in in the United States, I think they're all intertwined. And I think that the uh, mental terrain, if you will, is a big part of that because a big part of holding this thing up is. Uh, basically ensuring that there is no dissent and the extent that there is uh, has to be brutally punished. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Bryce Green so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.